Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, and slide your finger down to verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 18. Nehemiah chapter 3. This is part 3 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. We've been doing a broad sweep for those of you who have not been here for months now. Ezra, Esther, now Nehemiah, and uh, we come to the end of chapter 8. Chapter 8 has just been marvelous for me. And uh, so I I hope it's been instructive and inspiring to you. This last part gets into a little bit about the Festival of Booths or the Festival of the Tabernacles. And so uh, we're going to see some things out of this passage. Listen intently with your heart as well as your ears as I read this. You read along. Uh, in your Bible as I read this. Verse 13, on the second day, I'll be speaking to this, watch this, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study, gain insight into the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the, second, the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square east of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Father, I praise you and thank you now for the opportunity to study your word. We have been, we've been doing a lot with your word in, in the last several minutes. We've, we, we have sung your word. We've read your word. We've prayed your word. Now we, we come to the place where we, we, we digest your word. Lord, I, I pray that it would not just be information that goes into our heads, but that it be something that goes into our hearts as well by the power of the Holy Spirit and produces a change um, so that we might glorify you in everything that we do. So give us hearing ears during these moments, we pray, as we lead up to a time of, of celebrating uh, the body and the blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. We pray in His name. Amen. As I come to the end of this, this time today and in the middle of it, I'm going to say a phrase. And I want you to get this phrase, it is never too late for a new beginning. Amen. There are people in this congregation that need to hear that. Don't need to go into detail. It's never too late for a new beginning. Now, here's what we have seen in in chapter 8 of uh, the book of Nehemiah. We have seen that God's people are in the middle of a revival. I shared last week that maybe some of you are old enough. We don't have too much of this anymore, but maybe some of you are old enough to have been part of revival meetings in your church. A series of meetings where somebody from the outside would come in, you would sing special music as if the music we sing every Sunday is not special. And people would sing solos and all the rest, and they would have the youth pizza night, and they would gather the people there, and the preacher would preach. And I'm not downing that concept. Uh, I shared with you last week, in fact, that as an 11-year-old at a revival at a local little Baptist church, uh, I... The Lord had been dealing with me. I was under conviction, if you know what that means. And that's where I repented and believed in Jesus Christ and uh, 
So it had a great impact. But this is, this is a little bit different. These people are being revived, and it's through the ministry of the Word of God. And we've seen that. I'm not going to go back and review all of that. Last week I shared this illustration, though, that you need, you need to, to plug into. Jan and I walk just almost every day around our neighborhood, and we see yards. And the yards sometimes that we see are, are full of weeds, and they're bare patches, and uh, the, the flower beds are overgrown with grass, and, and fences are down, and all the rest of that. And then we see yards that are well manicured, and, and the grass is green, it's been well watered and fertilized, and all the rest of that. And, and the only difference between those two yards is that one has been maintained and looked after, and the other has not. And it has occurred to me that our spiritual life is a lot like people's yards. Now, I'm not trying to say that you're going to lose your salvation if you've got a lousy yard, okay? But here's what I'd like to communicate is that in order for you to have a spiritual life that is vibrant, that is alive, that, that is relating to the things of God, it is going to take work. Spiritually speaking, it's going to take fertilizing and watering and pruning. It's going to take the pulling out of weeds and all of the rest of that. Here, here's the lesson from this, not just about yards. Please hear this. Please, please hear this. In your spiritual life, there is no such thing as standing still. And I fear that there are a lot of Christians who believe that I can just be in neutral, not really doing anything toward becoming more of a follower of Christ, totally devoted follower of Christ, but not really sliding back. I can just stay neutral. No, you really can't. If you're stuck in neutral, you will go backwards without the initiative to take what the Word of God says, and move forward. And so they were in revival. It wasn't going to last, though, unless it was based in the Word. And, and that's something that we pray for. Do I pray for you and for me to have revival, that freshness of an experience with God? Sure, but always according to our being reformed by the Word of God. So that's what we see in Nehemiah. The structure is in place. The temple is built. The walls, the gates, they are all there. But now, starting with chapter 8, and we've seen this for the last couple of weeks, there is a re-instruction. And, and that's why this is so important for us. This is not just an ancient story. It is a real live picture of the fact that structure without character means little. So, what is this whole thing about the Feast of Booths? I really tried to enunciate that so that you wouldn't be kind of halfway listening or maybe you didn't wear your hearing aid today or, or something like that, and you heard me say, the Festival of Booths. I thought, now that's not going to go in a Baptist church, okay, yeah. Booths. Let's use another word, and we'll try to use it throughout the rest of this. It's the Feast of, or the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, what in the world does that mean? How do all the festivals and the feasts of, of Israel figure into that? And here's what I'm going to do. I couldn't believe it. I went back and looked in my, in my notes, and I preached a series. I know some of you are probably glad you weren't here for this. But back in 2016, I preached through the book of Leviticus, and it, it was some really, to me, to me, it was really rich. And so when we came to Leviticus 23, there God just gives these commands about all of the festivals. There were seven festivals, four in the spring, three in the fall. And so I, I thought, well, here's what I'm going to do to start this before we get to our two applications that are in your, your worship guide. I want to go through the festivals the feasts that God told Israel to remember. 
Now, as I do this, you need to realize that God was revealing. He was going back and He was reviewing what He had done in His deliverance of Israel from Egypt, taking them through the promised land, bringing them in to to that land that He had promised the, the fathers many, many years before, but he was also pointing forward to the work of the Messiah. And I don't have time, as I did back in the book of Leviticus, to go through all of that, but let me just do a, a, a quick overview uh, for you. And I've, here is something I put in my notes, and I thought, well, I'll do some pictures, because basically what God was doing in the festivals was giving Israel visual aids of His redemption. I love that. And so let me give you some visual aids. The Feast of Passover, you remember that. Israel was still in Egypt, and so God did something in this this thing called Passover. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to bring judgment upon the Egyptians, but for those of you who are my covenant people, I want you to do something. And I'm guessing that they probably didn't fully understand this. But boy, how this pointed forward to the Messiah. I want you to take a lamb. We won't go into all of the details, but I want you to take the blood of that lamb. We're doing the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. We're looking backwards. Take the blood of the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And you know, as they did that, it formed the shape of a cross. And when the Lord comes through to punish Egypt, by taking the firstborn, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, that feast was instituted then, and they were to remember Passover all the days of their existence, but the Jews, even today, don't really fully get it because it was pointing forward to a greater Passover. The next day, this is John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then Paul reminds us a little bit later on, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The wonderful feast of Passover. The second, which was very closely related, right on the heels of Passover, was the feast of unleavened bread. They were to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they only had time to make unleavened bread. And this became a wonderful, beautiful ceremony that was so indicative of what the Christ would do, the Messiah would do later. You see that it's, it's striped. This is, this is the matzah bread. And it would be hidden. It would be buried. It would be hidden and then found again during this festival. And it points to Jesus Christ. Clean out the old leaven. That's what they were to do. Leave Egypt behind so that you may be a new lump, just you were, in fact, unleavened. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. So just as as God led Israel out of slavery, He leads us through Jesus Christ out of our slavery to sin. Then there was the Feast of first fruits. I was looking at that picture uh, this morning, and I thought, oh, no. For those who are a little older, that looks like a a, a shaving brush. It's, yeah, yeah, okay. It's not, okay? That's a a sheaf of of grain. First fruits, the first fruits. Okay, here, here's the death of Christ, the burial of Christ. What does first fruits indicate? The gift of God's coming harvest, which is the next feast. But this is the beautiful picture of resurrection. Now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. Now, stop here. The Jews had no idea, but we do. We are not under obligation to celebrate the feasts today. Christ has fulfilled all of that. But it's good to have that 
as a remembrance. And then next, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, celebrated the gift of the full harvest 50 days after. This was the last of the spring festivals. And so, to, to, to bring it forward, Christ was crucified on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He was raised on first fruits, and then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gathered Jews and Gentiles and gave birth to the church when the day of Pentecost had come. We see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and this is, this is huge, uh, Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, and this is why I've told you before that the apostles were not woke. Because of the wonderful work of Christ. For he made both groups. This was Jew and Gentile. You couldn't be any further apart. Into one. So that he himself might make the two, look at this, one new man. You know what that says to me about, about you if you're a believer in Christ? We're joined at the hip. One new man. That is a powerful picture. But we've got to move on. I'm, this is the introduction. I'm not even to the point yet, but this is important. Then we jump to the fall festivals. Wow, the Feast of Trumpets. I wonder what that's all about. It not only pointed to the new year of the Jews, it also pointed to Jesus' return. That's yet future. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and what? The trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who remain will meet Him in the air, will always be with the Lord. Next, the Day of Atonement, a beautiful picture. If you remember when we went through that, one goat was sacrificed, the other goat hands were laid on him, the sins were confessed over him, sent out into the wilderness, the, the putting away of sin, the forgiveness of sin. Isaiah says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is stunning. The Lord was pleased to crushing, putting him to grief. That's Jesus so that he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then finally we come to the feast that, that, that the Jews had reinitiated the Feast of Tabernacles, which point back to the wilderness wanderings of the Jews coming out of Egypt, pointing to Christ to be the provision, and then someday, no matter what your eschatology of last things looks like, Someday, we will be with the Lord forever. Let me show you just a couple of quick verses. I put these two together. In the beginning was the Word. We've got to first see that Jesus came and tabernacled with us, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became fleshed. And the, word, the, the, the literal word here is He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. And then pointing back and pointing forward, the time that... that I just, I just think this is so stunning. Do you realize that when we look at the wilderness wandering of, of, of the Israelites, for 40 years they had food. Who gave them that food? God did. God gave them the food, the manna. They had water. Who gave them that water? God did. Oh, by the way, who was the rock that followed them in the wilderness? It was Christ. <laughs> And it even says, and I, I think this is stunning. I, I just, wow. What, the, the first two were miracles, but this is kind of a cool miracle. That their 40 years, their clothing and their shoes didn't even wear out. So that means that the Israelites, when they went out to mow the yard, they couldn't even go to the box with all of the old shoes and get an old pair to go out and mow the yard with because they didn't wear out. They were just like brand new every day. And I'm thinking, what an incredible God. Now, let me go back to the last of this and jump forward to us. 
we say this, but do we really believe it? And my God shall provide. He's going to be the provider for all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then jumping ahead to the book of Revelation, someday we're going to see that the tabernacle of God is among men forever and forever. The Feast of Tabernacles was, if we have anything that we can look at in in our own culture and compare it to, and in fact, if you go back and do a little study on this, our Thanksgiving is as close to the Feast of Tabernacles as any other thing that we do. And if you'll look back, some say that the early pilgrims who initiated Thanksgiving looked at the Feast of Tabernacles and used it as a model. It was the most joyous of all of the feasts. So with that, let's look at these three points and try to gain a little bit of insight. Now, before we actually get into the tabernacles and all that that means, I want you to look at the first couple of verses, well, actually the first verse again, because I want to hunker down and make an application out of this. I slowed down when I read it, but did, did you see something there that, that almost seems, sounds, feels out of step with our culture today? Look at it again, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, came to Ezra. Look who's initiating this. We said this last week, but look who's who's initiating coming to Ezra. It's not Ezra coming to them and saying, you really need to hear the word. Who is it that's coming to Ezra and saying, we need to hear the word? Who is it? Where? Where are the moms? I'm not saying that they're not there physically present. In fact, if you you read back, they could have been, but it was the fathers. I was reminded in just a brief discussion earlier, it doesn't say men, it says fathers and the heads of the households. So I'm looking at this, and the only possible interpretation you can get It was the fathers and the grandfathers who went to Ezra and said, we need God's Word, I reminded you last week, not man's Word, so that we can do what God's Word says. There, now now, please, let me stop and put this parenthesis. This is a description. This is not a prescription. But it aligns, you need to hear this, because some of the comments that I'm going to make may sound controversial. They are because they're biblical. They they go against the culture. And so while descriptive, this verse lines up with the rest of Scripture. There was a hunger to hear God's Word among the fathers, the grandfathers. Now, let me stop and say something I said a minute ago. It's never too late for a new beginning because the last thing I want to do is to bring guilt, notice the words, condemnation, upon fathers and grandfathers here who don't hunger after the Word for their own households. They're not running after it. It's never too late for a new beginning. Don't be burdened with guilt and condemnation, particularly if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, conviction, yes. Holy Spirit conviction is a good thing to get us out of the weeds, to get us to mow our yards, to get us to put another brick, to use another picture from earlier in Nehemiah into place. 
So dads and granddads, don't receive what I'm saying as condemnation. Receive it for the way that I believe that the Bible would want you to receive it. As the head of your household, hunger for the Word so that you can not only give yourself to the study of the Word, but that you can pass it on to the next generation and the next generation. Couple of things, all right? I don't know that you need to write these down. These are heart issues. It was the word they hungered for. There are a lot of substitutes for the word today. Don't buy them. There always have been, by the way. But you can go to other holy books. You, you can go to the uh, you can go to the Quran. It was written by a man. It wasn't written by God. And people do go to that, and they will get very offended if you tell them what I just said. I've seen it in person, live and in person. You could go to the Pearl of Great Price or the Covenants, written by Joseph Smith. Holy books written by a man. You could, and these are two books, or these are two women but they represent what I call today, instead of sola scriptura, they represent the God-told-me crowd. It's one thing to go to the Word of God and seek to interpret and wrestle with the interpretation and the application, because that's God's book. It's another thing, and people, I... I've shared some of these things. I don't know how many times I've had someone come to me and say, God told me, and then fill in the blank. It, it, there, there was a guy one time that came into my office, and I, I, I so appreciated it. I really did. He was leaving the church. That's, that's not uncommon. And so I said, why? He said, well, God told me. And I said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, right there. He was a good enough friend where I could do that. And I said, do you really mean what you said? Yeah, I really mean it. Then that is on an, that's on an even par with Scripture. If God really did tell you, and He said, oh, no, 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 I don't mean it to be on a par with Scripture, well, then why don't you just say, I have a strong impression in my heart. You're not going to impress me anymore. You're not going to give any more weight or credence to your decision to leave the church and go to another church by saying, God told you. In fact, I'm going to question your reasoning even more. And so don't buy into the, the, the Sarah Young syndrome, Jesus calling. I... I People, well, what's wrong with, well, she's speaking in first person for God. And, and you look and say, well, that's not in the Bible. And there are a lot more. I, I, again, I don't mean to just condemn, but watch out and be a, fathers and grandfathers, this is the book. Study it, and, and we'll come to a second thing that you need that. But, but here's the first thing. We need, and I'm a dad and I'm a grandfather, okay? Am I doing this perfectly? No. Am I taking the initiative to do this? Yes. Because I see the clear command for me that I need to pursue God's Word. Nothing less can substitute. And if you believe that we're living in the last days, which I believe we are, here's the title of that. You've already got it. Uh, these verses really are, are insightful. Uh, don't hold me to it, but people have asked, where are we going after Nehemiah? Which is code for, I'm ready for you to be through with Nehemiah. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. They're just curious, and I always toggle back between, uh, between Old Testament and New Testament. And so we're, we're going back to the... Uh, the, the New Testament, I've already done First and Second Thessalonians, and I've, I've wondered, 
Uh, and and I, I, I may go back to Paul and to the prison epistles in First and Second Timothy, which talk a lot about the last days. But anyway, here is, here is a statement of last days. We've already studied this when we studied through Second Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. We know that. With all power and false signs and wonders. Now watch. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also rose among the people. This is Old Testament Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. So when I talked about those people and the, the God told me crowd and all the rest of that, it's not just a matter of, well, you can believe like this or you can believe like that. These things are destructive heresies. That's where they lead. We really need to see it. So what does it mean? Let me just give you an application. Growing out of a, a, a statement in, that Paul makes in the prison epistles. Well, actually, he makes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There's a parallel to it in, in 1 Timothy. I long for the day... In this church, in, in every other church that names the name of Christ, when wives don't have to seek out the pastor for an interpretation of a particular Bible verse. Paul very specifically says, let the wives they have a question, ask their own husbands at home. I said a minute ago I was going to say something controversial. Just let that soak in. How does that feel in terms of what the culture is teaching? And not just this culture, every culture. That is, that is a command for the wives to seek the wisdom of their own husbands at home, I long for the day when that is reality. That's when revival is going to be apparent, R really. I remember saying those words to a group, and it was not received well. And one of the reasons was you you. Pastor, you don't know my husband. And I get it. Don't hear me condoning abuse. Uh, the, the putting down, the, the abandoning. I, I, I'm not condoning any of those things. But in a healthy relationship, a God-ordered relationship, this is what God desires. And I long for the day when dads and granddads recognize our God-given responsibility and stewardship to lead our families with the Word. And listen, many of you are doing that. Many of you are doing that. And if you need help, talk to a, a guy that seems to, to, to at least be doing that and say, well, what are you doing? And Walk with me. Listen, again, it's never too late to have a new beginning. Now, it's late in the game, but it's never too late to get back into the game. And there, there is just so much. Here's what I'm saying. There is a place for biblical patriarchy because the Bible teaches it. Okay, you ready to move on to point two? Let's do. Okay, I have several more points. I'm going to save them for another time because we need to get through this and have the Lord's Supper. But let, let's go into the next, the, the next P. 
picture of this. All right, this is, this is really important, and I believe this is what just flows out of the Scripture. Intake of the Word is not enough. Are you hearing me, students? I hope you have an intake of the Word of God. If you're not having a regular, quiet time reading the Word, even that part of the Word that you don't understand, please, please, I beg of you, start that. Start small if you have to, but start that. Regular intake is vital, but if you stop at just data storage, that's not what God wants. It says right here that they wanted the Word, and the English Standard Version translates that word study. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, refers to several other translations, and he gets it right. It's not just study to gain knowledge, it's that we pursue insight into God's Word. So intake of God's Word is important, but it must be accompanied by the pursuit of insight into God's Word so that we can act wisely. And and that starts at the very beginning. If you're here today and and, and maybe you're one of the, the children who attended our vacation Bible school and you took in all of that data. By the way, kudos for Sean McGill choosing that curriculum. It couldn't have been better. It couldn't have been more timely from the Answers in Genesis group. And it was all about the value, the sanctity of human life. Oh, wonderful. But if you're a, a child who came and you got some of that data in your head, and on the last night, Thursday night, you heard about all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that Christ was sent to die in the place of sinners, just like you, and that by repenting and turning away from sin and believing in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, His broken body, His shed blood, you can become a Christian. You can become a part of God's forever family. So if, if you think that this church is all about us getting knowledge, 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 you've heard the old illustration, haven't you? We don't want people to miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance between the head and the heart. It's an old picture. And that's why insight into the Word of God. absolutely necessary, pursuing insight so that instead of, okay, who is this for primarily? Well, I'm not negating the moms and and your importance, but I am saying that dads and granddads, we need to hear this, rather than just (laughs) drowning in data, we need the Word of God to inform us and not be like the disciples who had just seen Jesus do an incredible miracle of multiplying loaves and fishes, and then they get out on the water, and, and the, the storm is there, and He comes walking on the water, and they're afraid, and He gets in the boat, and He stills the storm, and I, I, you look at that, and this is the condition of a lot of us. Their hearts were, were hardened. They didn't understand. They didn't have insight into what was going on. Well, we need insight so that we can teach our children and grandchildren, and maybe even if you've got them, great-grandchildren, the Word of God, that you've been born again. By what? By the eternal, by the everlasting Word of God. We need to tell them that the only way to grow your faith is through what? The Word of God. So you're, you're always pointing them back to that as the foundation. You need to realize that the only way you're going to grow spiritually, one of the questions that I ask, and I've asked it recently to young men, is what kind of man do you want to be? And if they say, I want to be a godly young man, that's good. But then I know I've got to feed them the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Oh, your Word. 
is truth. That's the way you grow, and that's what we tell the generation after us and the generation after that generation. And then, do you want liberty? Do you want freedom from from bondage of, of any kind? I've shared this before. One of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible, there are several. The truth won't set you free. The truth is always the truth, and there are some of you who are in bondage. What the whole verse says, if you are my disciples, my followers, imperfect as that may look, then you are my disciples, and then you will, here's the, here's the input, know the truth, and here's the insight, then the truth will set you free. Who's going to teach your children and your grandchildren? I'll just bring them to church, let the Sunday school teacher do that. Let Billy and Sean and the BS workers and and we, we yes, we support. But the primary responsibility in this passage of scripture is the heads of the households, the fathers. And the grandfathers. Listen, let me let me tell you. The Bible makes a promise about the word. It says it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. It's not going to always look like what you think it's going to look like, but that is the promise that's given. Point three. This is important. Okay, insight. It follows intake. So intake and insight into God's word should lead to. I'm trying to be like John MacArthur here, get another eye. I had to work on this. So, initiating joyful obedience to God's Word. I, I, I'm still learning this, but it, it seems like that Christians are given a bad rap when it comes to obeying God. I got to obey God. What a drag. No! according to what they did, and they had to work at it. Now, this is really, really interesting. The fathers took the lead. They saw what God said in His Word. Now, this was specific about going out and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And they went back and told their families, go out and gather branches. I'll bet Tobias... And all of the people of the nations around them were saying, what in the world are you doing? Looks like you're picking up sticks, picking up branches. You're cleaning up your yard. We're obeying God. Who told you to do that? Our dads, our granddads, because they said, this is the way we're going to obey God. They took in the Word of God. They had insight. They initiated obedience. And do you remember what it says? Do you have your Bible still open? If you don't, you could just jot this verse down. Verse 17, all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in those tabernacles. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel hadn't done so. Whatever it was, it had been a long time, a long time. And so what was the result? Come on, what was the result? Not just rejoicing, not just great rejoicing, very great rejoicing. And I don't, I I just don't fully understand that except for the fact the most miserable Christians I know are living in unconfessed sin and not obeying God. And I've been there. And the most joy-filled Christians that I know, imperfect as it may be and they may be, are seeing what the Word of God says and informing their conscience, their heart of that, and then taking the initiative to obey God. Now, I said a minute ago, this was the most joyful of celebrations. I'd like you to kind of think with me. Okay, what are they going to do for a week? 
Come on, tell me. They're going to build a hut, a three-sided hut that's open on the top. They're going to put leafy branches and all that. By the way, there's a symbol there. Why did they leave the top open? Shouldn't they have something man-made to protect them from the elements? No, it was a sign that they were looking to God as the one who would protect them. And it was a sign, too, that they would leave. Well, I say the comforts of home. I'll bet you the kids at the Feast of Tabernacles were saying, yes, we get to go camping. Tent camping. It it was just wonderful. They got to go out and sleep under the stars and look through those palm fronds and all the rest of that and see the stars. And their dads and their granddads would say, you know what? Look at those stars. How many are there? Do you know that God created those stars? And every one of them has a name. Every part of this feast was filled with with joy. And and then it also reminded them of what they had experienced from the covenant God, Jehovah God, through the wilderness wanderings. Oh, by the way, uh, there was also a a picture of this. You know, those tents were very frail, the tabernacles. Guess what? I'm just throwing this in. Our tents are pretty frail, right? We've seen evidence of that recently. But guess what? For a Christian, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let me just rip and run through this. What what, what were they symbolizing when they went out and spent those nights? That God was truly, and these are covenant names with God. One of the reasons I love to use the Lord's Prayer as, as a prayer guide, is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so I've looked up the covenant names of God. I love to just say, you are Jehovah Shammah. You're present. You're, you're with us. Moses said, unless you go with us, I, I don't want to go. Jehovah Shammah also says, and again, the Word became flesh. He dwells among us. Jehovah Shammah also says this wonderful promise, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. What's another covenant name that they saw in the wilderness? Jehovah Raha, not Rapha, but Raha. He is my shepherd. He would guide. Did he guide the nation of Israel? every day and every night through the wilderness for 40 years? Yep. Will he do the same for you? Yep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I know, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. This is so cool if you're, if you're a Christian. I know them and they follow me. This may sound trite, you really don't know, have to know your future next week as long as you're following Jesus. He'll take you where He needs to go, where you need to go, and He'll give you the provision that you need to have. And that's why another covenant name, we're not going to go through all of them. This is the third and last one. He is Jehovah Jireh. And this is that verse I was telling you about a minute ago. Let them through, gave them food to eat, water to drink, and their clothes did not wear out, neither did their sandals off of their feet. Philippians 4.19, everybody knows this verse. Would you say this verse with me? It's on the screen. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And that is true. You can take it to the bank. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. What's the great cloud of witnesses? Maybe it's the church. I kind of think it gets more to the family circle. So you children and students sitting out here, maybe your cloud of witnesses is your family, your dads and your granddads and your moms and all of the rest. Lay aside the things that weigh you down. Now watch this. And look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. I think this parallels with the Feast of Tabernacles. Who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. This is a marvelous, marvelous picture of our life in Christ. This is a marvelous picture also, I think, of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper when we see that that Jesus says, I am the bread of life and I have given my body to be broken. So let me ask you to do this. Let me ask you just to take that that container. If you do not have that container, Please raise your hand, and we will get one to you. I'm sure that there are some who made it in without that. The Lord's Supper is a, is a serious observance, but I think it's one that, just like this verse says, it's filled with great joy. Jesus was going to go through incredible suffering, but the joy of being back with His Father, having obeyed everything, but also having you and me to accompany him would ultimately bring him great joy. I'm going to read this text of Scripture here, and then we're going to to pray uh, from Matthew chapter 26. I'll read this in a minute, but uh, just in a second. In fact, just go ahead and do this right now. Take the, the bread portion and turn it up, and then take off plastic enough or the cardboard enough to get to the wafer, and uh, we're going to read the Scripture and pray, and then we'll take the element together. This is the Last Supper of Jesus and His disciples. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Father, I thank You that You have given us... um, a visual. This is not the body of Christ. It is a, uh, it's a remembrance of the body of Christ, broken for us. The fact that there is nothing that we can do, nothing we can say, no amount of church attendance or giving or whatever that can put us in your good graces, but through the miracle of Christ crucified for our sins, buried and raised on the third day, we can know forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Father, it is my sincere prayer that that which I spoke of a minute ago, not only for children but also for adults, that if anyone has not believed savingly in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day. Lord, only you know, and you're the one who can do that work in that man's life or that woman's life or that student's life, or that child's life. So do it for your glory, Lord. And and now as we remember the broken body and we partake of this element, we pray that you would help us to remember you until we come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.